Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 620 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them all arranged in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a page about alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Babaji Bob Kindler. Welcome, Babaji. Thank you very much, Rick. It's great to be here. You're doing such wonderful work. I've seen your name popping up. I think it's been in our database system or something for a number of years. And I think, oh, Babaji, Bob Kindler, don't know anything about him. And somehow or other, at one point recently, we really focused in, what's this guy all about? And, oh, he, he looks kind of interesting. And then I just spent the last week listening to many hours of your talks. And I kind of feel like we could probably have a series of two-hour conversations for the next couple of months and not run out of fresh material <laughs> to talk about. No yeah. doubt. Let me read your bio here, but you're a huge wealth of wisdom. But I thought before we get any further, why don't you do one of those little Vedic chants that people often do at the beginnings of satsangs? Certainly. Om Adi Sa Samyoga Namittehetu Parastrikala Dakala Pidrastaha Tam Vishwarupam Bhavabhutamidyam Devam Svachitastam Uptasya Purvam Om Shantihi, Shantihi, Shantihi. Meditate upon the Lord as thine own self, seated in your heart, who appears to you as the universe and who is the ultimate source of all living beings. Perceive that one as the only witness to the changing phenomena of this universe and as the partless divine entity which transcends the three phases of time, past, present, and future. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us. May peace be unto all. Om Hari Om Hari Om Hari Om Tatsat. Thank you. So let me read your bio. Babaji Bob Kindler is the spiritual director of the Sarada Ramakrishna Vivekananda SRV Associations, has been since 1993 with teaching centers on the Big Island of Hawaii and Portland, Oregon. Babaji teaches Vedanta, Yoga, Sankhya, and other philosophical systems of truth with an emphasis on learning to live a divine life and the attainment of direct spiritual experience. He holds a twin spiritual heritage via initiation into the Ramakrishna lineage, Vedanta, and Kagyu Tibetan Buddhism. Editor of Nectar of Divine Truth, which I have a copy of here, a journal of universal religious and philosophical teachings. He is also the author of over a dozen books on spiritual topics, including Dissolving the Mindstream, A Quintessential Yoga Vashishta, 24 Aspects of Mother Kali, and Footfalls of the Indian Rishis, Charting the Timeless Wisdom of Mother India. I have a copy of this one here, and it is a, a honker of a book, really impressive. In fact, not only is it impressive in terms of its weight and its content, which it just arrived yesterday, and I've only had a chance to skim some of it, but it smells good. I think you must, have, you must store these in the same place where you store incense. It's heavy, man. <laughs> That's a heavy book. <laughs> 
Well, let me just finish up. Babaji's spiritual discourses can be found on YouTube, live stream, and on the official SRV Association's website, srv.org, and I'll be linking to those on his BatGap page. You know, one impression or thought I kept getting as I was perusing all these things that you've written is that all this is kind of evidence of a very focused, dedicated life. I've heard you mention, I've heard other teachers mention that, and there's even a verse in the Gita, you know, that verse, um, for many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute, but the resolute intellect is one-pointed. And there's also yoga is skill in action. And you couldn't produce all this without a very focused mind. A lot of great scientists have said similar things. People like Einstein and Newton and others were famous for their ability to focus like a laser beam and just go very, very deep into whatever they were doing and really become quite oblivious to anything else that was going on while they were doing it. And it has, it has its, you know, it produces the kinds of results that we're seeing in your life. Any thoughts on that? I think concentration is the art of everything. I think through that you can get to samadhi, you can get to transcendental awareness, non-duality, Without it, it's just not possible, except maybe in starts and spurts. Oh, it's also true with uh, a paravid, or lower secular knowledge. If you can concentrate, you'll be successful, and, and if not, it's going to be very difficult to have ongoing success. Yeah, look at our culture these days, with everybody staring at their phone, and the phone is dinging every minute or two with something that distracts the attention. And there have been studies on what this does to productivity. If people are constantly interrupted by emails or phone messages or anything else, it takes a good while to refocus again after such an interruption. You don't just instantly snap back. You know what this is, right? And this? What are you doing? These are mudras. We have a kind of a joke nowadays here in SRV that people are born in shapes that follow their mudras. So my brother's a world-famous violinist, so he came out of the womb <laughs> like this. All my father and mother had to do was just drop a bow on a violin there, and he could start playing. And he did, very early age. So I think the mudra of the future, if we're not careful, is probably going to be something like this. You'll see your baby come out of the womb holding a cell phone, as it were, and that samskara, they call that in Sanskrit. Some people have sort of died as a result of their cell phones stepping in front of traffic or falling off the rim of the Grand Canyon or things like that because they're so absorbed in them. Oh, Lord, protect us. So your path is a blend of Advaita and Shaktism, which I presume is related to Kashmir Shaivism, correct me if I'm wrong, and obviously very much related to Sri Ramakrishna. And you describe this as making it universal and inclusive of all religions. So please elaborate on all of that. First to say that Shaktism, I think Divine Mother, just she transcends and, and interpenetrates all boundaries. You'll find her in Buddhism, like you just said, that I had a Tibetan Buddhist initiation with Karmapa back here on Maui in this island just a few hundred miles off to my right away from the big island. And so when I got that, I got the mantras to Tara, white Tara and green Tara, when I was initiated. So that's both divine mother forms. Uh, so I'd say Shaktism, you know, of course, in Vedanta, you'll find her as uh, Brahman and Shakti, and in Tantra, you'll find her as Shiva and Shakti. So it's not just Kashmiri Shaivism that 
although I have made a study of that, where she is. I like the blend of non-dualism and mother worship is called Shakta Advaitavada. It's a path, it's an actual path in India that we discovered when we were there. And so it's a beautiful blend of non-duality and mother wisdom. I imagine some are devoted exclusively to non-duality, and there are certain scriptures, such as the Madhukya Upanishad and maybe the Ashtavakra Gita, which seem to just lean heavily on the notion that really nothing ever happened. And there's very little concession with the relative creation. And please elaborate, but as I understand it, Shaktism would give greater credence or respect to the creation itself. Whereas, you know, again, some teachers would say, why are you doing that? It's all Maya. Don't even step in that direction. And I have a certain problem with that personally, but maybe you do too, which is why you embrace Shaktism as well as Advaita. Yeah, I think it makes just 100% sense to be dedicated to the formless and form both. I think Shakti is um, an all-pervasive verity. You know anything about Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, you know that his Ishtam was Mother Kali, and that's a very profound, almost formless aspect of the Divine Mother. But for instance, you just said, talking about concentration, how important it is, I think if one focuses on Brahman alone, as the Upanishads ask us to do, then that's not just a mere transcendentalism you're talking about, where you go somewhere profound and never come back, as these great souls have come back. The difference between a videha mukta and a jivan mukta is one who will take one birth and then see everything here, and like Buddha say, I'm gone and gone forever. Uh, Paragatam found the supreme goal, showed it, and left. So now he's got emanations coming back, but maybe he isn't. Maybe Christ will not come back either after his rough treatment here after 2,000 years. But whatever the case may be, if you concentrate upon Brahman and Shakti as the two who are one, we like to say, then of course you'll get the fruits, as you were just saying, of that. And that means that uh, you don't just have a, a kind of sterile non-duality that you're following that maybe discludes worship or puja or forms or deities. But like with Tibetan Buddhism, they have both. They have the Mahamudra, which is the non-dual teaching there, and they also have the worship of the deities. So that's much, much richer and much fuller, is my feeling, is my experience. One of the reasons I favor that approach is that I just have the sense in everything I perceive that there's a kind of a miraculous intelligence or complexity functioning in it. If you watch one of those computer animated videos of the mechanics of a cell, for instance, it's jaw-dropping. The degree of complexity and intelligence that's on display within a single cell. Cell biologists say that a, a cell is like as complex as the city of Tokyo, and yet it, it can repair itself and replicate itself and all that. And to just sort of brush that off as Maya without due consideration of the profundity of what you're actually beholding seems to me to sell short the marvel of creation. Just dismissing creation as Maya and then going on to the, the next topic or something, um, kind of seems a little insulting to the divine. Well, that Sri Ramakrishna said that, uh, like the skin of a mango, you know, that's maya, but it has a function, and so it protects the flesh until the fruit is ripe. 
that nobody eats the skin because I'll give you a rash. <laughs> yeah. You know that Mango in your way very well. So he had lots of nice stories like that, simple analogies about Maya, the necessity of Maya, not just its beware of Maya kind of aspect. Remember, Divine Mother is Mahamaya. That's one of her great names, Mahashakti, Mahamaya. So she's the controller and overseer of all phenomena. If you blend that with non-duality, then you'll know the advantage of attaining formlessness through her, through the porthole she offers to us to get to a Nirvikalpa Samadhi or a Sampragacha Samadhi or Satori or any of the ways in which the traditions a beatific vision, if you wish, or fana in Islam. I mean, she'll offer you a way to get to that divine reality. We love to say ma, ma, ma in our tradition, because that, those are also the final words of Sri Ramakrishna. So I was, I was often saying ma doesn't mean just matter and activity. Ma means moksha and atman, too. What it stands for, divine mother reality, is very profound and all-pervading. There's probably fewer, better words in English than words like all-pervading. Just dwelling on this theme a little bit longer, the way some people seem to frame it, it's as though the, the creation were some kind of mistake that we've fallen into. And the whole purpose of life is to get out of it as quickly as possible. But I don't think God would make this whole fuss as a mere mistake. There must be some evolutionary purpose to it, both for we as individuals, insofar as we actually exist as individuals, and perhaps for God himself. St. Teresa of Avila said, it appears that God himself is on the journey. Yeah, I think as human beings, that's true. As transcendental reality, God is a create, Swami Vivekananda told us. Creation is all happening from the mind, from the cosmic mind to the collective mind to the individual mind. Those are called the three levels of mind in our tradition. So uh, that's all projectionism, sankalpa, they call it. Krishna calls it in the Gita. So it's a very high kind of sankalpa when it's in the hands of the Trinity, like Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, but it becomes dumbed down, as it were, when it reaches the realms of the gods, the asuras, the ancestors particularly, which we're on a wheel with right now called samsara, and then down to the human mind. So these teachings of the Dharma go very deeply and help us understand this idea that, uh, as Vivekananda would often remind us, that uh, Brahman, or what we're calling God, does not move and does not incarnate. Where would be the time of the coming of the soul when all of time is in the soul? Where would be the space to which the soul would go when all the space is in the soul? Which is why I started out with that Sanskrit chant, Meditate upon the Lord as thine own self seated in your heart. And that fulfills every criterion both with form and beyond form. And I think it's only through that kind of deeper realization that uh, you can, if you like, depart from the world in full knowledge of yourself. Whereas the risk outside of Mahamaya, if you do fall victim to Maya, ignorance, delusion, illusion, the way they used to describe it, or if you want, name, form, time, space, and causation, or karma, those five things are the definition of maya by Swami Vivekananda. So if you fall victim to those, then you've got a problem with suffering and so forth. Otherwise, you can be in sport here. You can take on a body and easily give it up like a child outgrows a set of clothes, Krishna says. Several thoughts on that. 
pretty much everyone falls victim to it, right? I mean, if they're alive, if they're born, there's very one in a billion, perhaps, who don't fall victim to it, at least initially. And then the trick, the name of the game is to work your way out of it once you're in it. Yeah, wake up from the dream. It's all a projection of the mind. And I think most souls, even if they're not obviously fully realized, can wake themselves up if they want to out of the nightmare. Sometimes it takes suffering to do that, but not always. Sometimes it can be done by studying the Dharma, which is what we're trying to get people interested in. Being in charge of your own spiritual life. Like the subtitle of your show there, you're giving interviews with people who are in the process of awakening. Well, I don't think Buddha would probably agree with that, because he says, he was asked once, there are two kinds of beings you taught, sleeping and the awakened, or the ignorant and the enlightened. But isn't there a third kind of being, those who are in the process of awakening? And he said, no, no, Ananda, those who are in the process of awakening are already awakened. Now that's an Avaitic statement, and that needs to be pondered. And that needs to be realized because it's all this. Otherwise, you're keeping yourself in this dream. And you can awaken at any time you wish under your own auspices. Yeah. To my understanding, what Buddha said, I used to have a teacher who used to refer to us as the already enlightened people or something. We would scratch our heads like, ah, <laughs> because we realized, at least most of us, that we did have a long way to go, perhaps. Well, that's how Vivekananda wrote that poem angels unaware. So he came here and saw the Christian people, you know, and their longing for heaven and their idea of salvation and their idea of a savior and so forth. And it, he was an Advaitist, so he could understand it, but it wasn't his perspective. So he would put that in a song or in a poem, angels unaware. And so he used to say that to us, don't you know that you're just God walking around on two legs? The sooner you realize that, it'll be yeah. the better for your culture. And so do you think Buddha's statement is that the people who were sitting in front of him, even though they might not quite be as clear as he was, were as good as done, considering the whole span of evolution that one can undergo? He was being a little bit flattering and optimistic based upon their ardor as spiritual aspirants. For sure, and I certainly didn't mean to cast any aspersions on the subtitle of your show, because there's also the fact that he might have been speaking specifically to that one person who asked the question, and he needed to know that for himself, that he might not use that same answer for another level. And actually, the subtitle of the show used to be Interviews with Spiritually Awakened People, and then after a while we began to realize that everybody's a work in progress, so it just seemed too static and superlative, you know, so we changed it to awakening. It opens up a whole possible can of worms about a non-duality, what people are accepting as being perfect nowadays. There's a lot of people that jump to the goal before they're qualified for it. And uh, we see the effects of that in spiritual life, particularly in the West. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. We might as well just launch right into it. You've probably heard of the term neo-advaita. And I've run into many of yeah. these people, and it just seems like it's a syndrome of a sort where a person goes to some satsangs and reads some books, and the teacher may say to them, you're already enlightened, don't bother doing any practices, because practices kind of imply that there's a practicer and there really isn't, and you're just reinforcing the practicer if you do practices, and just accept that you're enlightened and you're as good as done. And 
avoid interviewing people who talk that way. Exactly. That's um, doing the Advaita and injustice, I think. Uh, in fact, my teachers, the ones I respect the most, and others that I revere very much have said that you must, you must do sadhana every day, even if you are enlightened. For instance, Shankara would always talk about keeping the mirror of his mind wiped clean. But that means he knows the difference between the Atman, or Buddha nature, and the mind, that they're two different territories or two different things. So it, it really helps to discriminate, separate the wheat from the chaff. And I think in India, the, the Dharma teachings and what we call Atmagyan, knowledge of the self, are directed expressly at that and would help you avoid such a way of thinking. I heard that the Buddha himself meditated regularly all of his life, too. I don't, I'm no expert on the Buddha, but I, someone told me that. And I think someone asked him why, and it was kind of like what you said. It's kind of like what Shankara said. Right. It's, I think he was asked that, and Shankara said two things. So, because uh, I want to keep my vision of God perfect now that I have it, and the mind collects cosmic dust, like you just said earlier, you know, we're works in progress, so the mind is never going to be pure. We hear about pure mind and Buddha mind, but that doesn't mean that, or it probably means that when you transcend mind, then you understand what pure mind is. But the second reason Shankara gave was to be an example to others. Krishna says, people who do sadhana are favored by the Lord, that is spiritual practice. Buddha said the same thing. He said, Sloth is the rest of society's non-recitation of wisdom scriptures, is the rust of monasteries. Non-self-effort is the rust of households. So be like a noble guard at the gates of a great city, always on vigil. So that's the sadhana that one does. It keeps the maya away. Otherwise, it tends to seep in. Insidiously, also, incrementally. I listened to your whole series on the evolutes of Maya, and uh, I think one of them was something along the lines of, I'm phrasing it in my own words, but something along the lines of, you know, the first thing Maya does is delude you to the fact that you're deluded. And once that trick has been accomplished, then anything. Yeah, it's like opening the gates to light, but letting a bunch of other critters in, too, because the gate's been closed so long. Now, I think if people hear this conversation and they think, eh, spiritual practice is such a chore, then I don't blame them for not wanting to do it. But in my experience over all these years, it's always been something I've looked forward to. It's like the highlight of my day. And so even if I'm really tired or something, maybe I'll lie down, take a nap for a little while, and then sit up and, and meditate. And it, it's blissful. It's enjoyable. It, it doesn't take discipline. And believe me, I was not a disciplined person when I learned to meditate. I dropped out of a couple of high schools and gotten arrested a couple of times and just was kind of a, a mess. But boy, as soon as I, I really learned to meditate, it was taken like a duck to water. Yes, spiritual life, that could only mean that you have some samskaras in a past birth, past births for practice, because it doesn't come to people easily. And uh, I wouldn't say I would blame them for not going towards it, but it is really the answer to all problems in relativity is to take these teachings that have been forgotten and refresh them in your mind. And our founder, Lex Hickson, of SRV Associations, and I used to agree on that explicitly, that Dharma is really the answer to all problems in relativity. And that will lead you towards even beyond solutions, because 
problems with solutions also go on a lot in relativity. But you want to get beyond the iron chain and the gold chain, Vivekananda says, and slough them both off. Yeah. And you know that Gita verse, um, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Even a little of this dharma removes great fear. So that should be an encouragement to everyone. No effort is lost. If you do even a little this practice or whatever practice is effective for you, a little can go a long way. And a lot can go a real long way. It destroys the great fear, he says in that sloka. That's people's fear of death. And according to Patanjali, fear of death is the fifth and lowest hell you can fall into. That's how far we've come away from knowledge of our eternal self, is that we believe in death. That's the reason I often interview people who've had near-death experiences, because people can go into a near-death experience being a total atheist and figuring that this body is all that I am, and then they come out of the experience with a completely new perspective, um, in a way actually looking forward to dying again without being morbid about it, just because they realize, whoa, there's so much more and you don't die. Yeah, I think it's a win-win. You can look at it that way, but maybe a little splash of cold water in your face, because Krishna says right near that same sloka you just cited, that uh, what is sweet in the beginning turns sour in the end, and what is sour in the beginning will, will turn sweet in the end. Sour is practice, and it was the same in your work life. It was hard to go to school, hard to attain degrees. It was you know sour, and turned sweet later. So there's no reason why spirituality should be the same. You should put that kind of effort into it, and wait and then uh, receive yeah. the benefits of it. And if it is if it is sour at first, I mean, if it feels like, oh, I really don't want to be sitting here. I mean, I never had that problem because I really enjoyed it from the start. But I imagine when you sit to meditate now, it's not a chore. It's not sour. It's just like, oh, I get to have this lovely bath in bliss for a while now. Before we started this interview, you and I both admitted to each other that we're over 70. So it's starting to take on the ambiance of my teacher now when I saw him live to 90. And his teacher had told him that Sri Sharda Devi, the Holy Mother, told him that does God exist only when eyes are closed and cease to exist when they're open? Well, I saw him in that state where he was just seeing his meditation was all the time. It wasn't just an hour or two. So... He had achieved what we call Advaita, non-duality, and therefore was living in that non-dual state. And external and internal, as Shankar says, just became fused into one divine reality. And then he passed his time contentedly, and he was free. Isn't that what we're really talking about when we talk about enlightenment or an awakened state? It's, it's not just an intermittent thing that comes and goes. It should be 24-7, whether you're active or sleeping or meditating or eating or Whatever, there's just this continuance of pure awareness. Yes, and I think that's what Patanjali, with my students, we've been taking retreats on the eight-limbed yoga and looking into the different kinds of samadhi. As Patanjali, just like Kapila, came along and gave us the 24 cosmic principles at an early time, and every system has used that. Even non-Indian systems have used the 24 tattvas as a basis for their philosophy. Tattvas mean insentient principles. They're such like earth, air, fire, water, and ether, tasting, touching, hearing, smelling, seeing. And then those same ten in your mind, the tanmatras are called, and the fourfold mind itself, the ego, the manas or mind, the intellect, the buddhi, and uh, the thoughts of the mind, chitta. Those are called 24 cosmic principles. So just like Kapila stated those for our benefit, 
then we had great teachers come along later that uh, also solved these problems for us and gave us a, a sort of, uh, like I was just speaking about Patanjali, when he came along, he used that 24 cosmic system to form his sutras. And in those sutras, he, he starts to tell you about what happens to you when you practice the earlier limbs and how this turns into samadhi of seeded kind, seeded samadhis. That is, there's a seed that something comes from. And then there's one unseeded samadhi. So you've got seeded samadhis, there's savichara, sarvitarka, nirvichara, nirvitarka. These are all kinds of samadhis people have, and I'm just bringing them up in response to what you said, is that these are the samadhis that come and go, uh, so that we're not always constant in, in our awareness. We go into them, we come out of them, Maybe we even do it before we're enlightened, unknowingly. People are having these profound states come upon them. But it's, it's very good to study them by a master like Patanjali. I used to hear, a, I guess this is a traditional Indian analogy to describe this stuff, but when they used to dye cloth in ancient India, they would dip it in the colored dye and then bleach it in the sun, and then dip it again and bleach it in the sun. So when it's in the dye, it's just pretty much the same color as it's going to ultimately be once it's fully dyed. But they have to keep fading it and dipping it in order for it to become color fast. And so that analogy was used to re relate to the idea of going into samadhi in a temporary way in, in meditation and then getting back in activity. And the activity tends to fade it, but at the same time it integrates it, you know, and neurophysiological changes take place so that eventually it can be sustained. 24-7. It's beautiful you mentioned that because Sri Ramakrishna used to tell a story of the dye master and people would come to him with their cloths, their white cloths. Please dye this yellow, please dye this red, please dye this ochre. And uh, they would give him the cloths. He'd put them in a vat, bring it out, and it would be the color that they wanted. So one man was looking on and he said, how is he doing that with one vat? Whatever color they asked for, it comes out of that same tub of dye. So he walked up to the dye master and said, please dye my cloth the color of the dye in your tub. That's non-duality, you see. So it's a uh, field of all possibilities. So all the different diversity comes out of it. Is that the point of it? The dye master is that one who has mastered all levels of existence. And therefore, he owns that one dye that can color anything, any color he wants for anyone. So that's a great, great, that's an avatar or a great soul. I want to interject just one thing. Every time I talk to somebody like you or study Vedanta, which I do regularly, or any of these other systems, I'm always impressed by the intellectual sophistication of these systems, the depth and detail with which these ancient people have thought this stuff out. It really makes Western philosophy pale by comparison, although some of that is really voluminous, but the clarity and precision that these subtle realms are understood and an important thing is it's not just understanding, it's experience. I mean, the people who say all this stuff aren't just philosophizing in the abstract. They're basically describing stuff that they themselves have experienced. So in that sense, it's empirical, it's scientific. Right. They did the practice that was advised to them by the people who had realized the truth. And then they too realized the truth. It's really very simple, straightforward. But you have to give it time, and you have to take up a teacher, take one path, both Kapila and Patanjali recommend that. Study one path deeply until 
you know, dig one deep well till you get water, they say, and not a bunch of shallow wells. And that might even lead us on to another topic you might want to discuss, but this that we've already mentioned is this kind of uh, menu tasting that's going on in the West. We look at, say, you and I have been alive that long, so we saw the 60s, and we saw Zen Buddhism come, and then we saw Tibetan Buddhism come, and then we saw Sufism come, then we saw Chen come, and, you know, uh, Zen Buddhism. So we've seen America's love affair with each of these, like, decade by decade. And it's left some sort of positive effect on some people, but it's a straw and fire problem that uh, Vivekananda mentioned when he saw the Westerners. They flare up when they hear of a system like this, but then they burn out too quickly. So perseverance, persistence in the path, working yourself to the goal, like Lord Buddha advised, and not taking any wooden nickels, not jumping to chase like, oh, I heard the truth, now I've realized it and I'm enlightened, I'm there that you haven't even really taken the first step. I can say that at the same time not depressing people by saying that all of those steps are within you, and you've taken them before. And yes, we've come to Earth, you've taken on a body, you've gotten an embodiment, you're attracted to matter, you may be practical and working out your karmas. All these things are, are happening and are possible for people. But at the same time, there's always these risks, too, that are you know falling onto the wheel of samsara and and they say, you know, into the ocean of soft sorrow, so that you've got these many bursts of suffering that we don't see that often, people in the West. We don't see that kind of suffering very often. And India saw that a lot over millennia and is going through it even now and coming out of it. So all those things, I think, are worthy of note when you talk about enlightenment practice and Ignorance. Yeah, there are a number of points in there which we can go into more deeply. Finding a teacher, finding a practice, sticking with it, not skipping around, and this notion of suffering. All those points. But then the last one you mentioned, suffering. And some people say, well, the reason that in these ancient cultures where the Buddha lived and others had so much emphasis on getting off the wheel is that life could be really tough. I mean, you could die of a toothache in those days, you know, because you didn't have, they didn't have modern dentistry. And if one is more comfortable in life, maybe there won't be such a burning desire to attain the kind of liberation in which you no longer would incarnate. Well, I think that the reincarnation theory, if you want to call it that, I call it a relative truth, actually. It's not an ultimate truth because the soul never goes anywhere. It just dreams itself to different places is the short of it. The long of it would then get you more into the karma that's accumulated by people that's bringing them back. And it's, it's rather uh, uncontestable, I think. Basically, people are coming back here in different conditions of mind with uh, different talents or lack thereof, different qualities or lack thereof. There are people with evil propensities, and there are people with good propensities, and then there are people with transcendent propensities. So in this admixture of souls here, which we call the physical world, it would behoove, let's put it, I was going to put it in a more negative way, but it would behoove everyone to accept, finally, the doctrine of reincarnation, which the Far East particularly has been in knowledge of for so long. In India, they just take it for granted now. I mean, it's not something that you'd argue about or contest. You know, it's just that makes sense out of all of what's happening to me or to others. 
even to nations. There's karma at a collective level. So I would say that that's a, a missing piece right now, philosophically and cosmologically. Yeah, I agree. I, I interviewed a guy named Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia, who he and his predecessor, Ian Stevenson, had interviewed and are still interviewing. He is literally well over a thousand kids who remember past lives in verifiable detail, you know, like the name of the aircraft carrier that their plane took off from in World War II and the name of their friends and the type of plane they were flying. This is like a little kid who's like four or five years old and hadn't even studied any of this stuff. I remember stories like that, yeah. And also Christianity, many argue that reincarnation used to be part of it and it got edited out at the Council of Nicaea or some such thing. Yeah, along with karma. I think it didn't want to really give people control of their own destiny. They wanted to fill the coffers of the church. And it's it's the same with religion everywhere, really. It's not just Christianity. But I could say this, and I've often taught this from a more Advaitic standpoint, is that I think when you remember your past lives, as Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, oh, I've had many, Arjuna. You've had many too, but I remember all mine. I think... When a great soul like Sri Krishna or a great soul like that incarnates, it's not the details of the life that he's remembering. It's the essence of life. They always remember their Atman or their Buddha nature or their Busho in Zen. That's what makes everything else possible. That's what makes the details, you're able to remember them. So if, say, people go to New Age parties or something, and they've heard about it, you know, well, I was Mary, Queen of Scots. Yes, well, I was such and such. You know, so, well, you must know how, you must have a, some scar for being beheaded. Let's see if you fear this knife when I pick it up. But whatever the case, nobody ever goes to a party and says, uh, well, I was a street sweeper, you know, in my last lifetime. <laughs> but how many lifetimes people have had, I think it's a little bit um, shallow to think. It's sort of like deja vu, the way we used to use it back in the 60s. Oh, man, you know, I, I remember I've been here before. Yeah, probably thousands of times. Well, it's a kind of an awakening, but it goes a lot deeper than that if you study the Dharma. Karma and reincarnation are huge topics, and they have a lot to offer in their study. But I think if you, if you study them, accepting their, at least the possibility of them, then uh, that would be good if you're, and this will probably lead us into another direction, but if you're just scientifically oriented, physics only, then that's not going to occur to you going to be an option. It could, though. I don't see any reason why a quantum physicist couldn't also appreciate reincarnation. There's nothing in quantum physics that refutes it or anything like that. And this guy, Jim Tucker, I mentioned, he really does try to be scientific in his analysis of it. And like you said, it's a huge topic. And I think it's also huge in the sense of important, because if that's the way life works, if that's the way the universe works, it seems to me it makes a big difference whether you realize that or not. It makes a big difference in terms of the way you perceive your own life and feel about your eventual death and your whole deep sense of safety or security or contentment or anything else it would be different one way or the other, depending on whether or not you get that point. Yes, this thirst for life forever quench, it drags from birth to death and death to birth the soul is how Vivekananda put that. And he talked about that being a lifetime of piling more gloom on gloom. So he wasn't really kind to the fact that people would forget about reality and not try to experience it. And at the same time, 
just allow the field of the mind, you know, to go fallow and not keep current with uh, where you've been. I remember speaking at a college. One of my students helped me speak at a college somewhere in Wyoming a few years back. And I remember walking into the classroom and telling people, why are you still here? You know, you've been going to school for lifetimes. You know everything here. And the teachers would start sweating, you know, and get the cane, you know, get this guy off in front of my class, you know, because they won't come and try and get graduate degrees and pay money anymore. So some revolutionary talk like that is really, though, more towards the truth of relativity of rebirth is that you're just regurgitating lifetime after lifetime all this this stuff. And what comes along with this is, is a lot of karmic baggage. Someone asked Vivekananda once, what do I do with all these negativities in my mind? He said, go search for them, gather them together, bundle them up and throw them in a river. You know, and just live a positive life. And you'd be surprised how few people can manage that. They brood. That brooding is one of the most difficult things to get out of. It's akin to depression. So, I mean, if we want to start talking on the level of duality or even fundamentalism or samsara, then you have to face off with those problems that are facing humanity. You know, my teacher used to say, you can't get to the infinite through the finite. You cannot reach the Lord within you, the ultimate reality, by following the track of the world. You're going to have to transcend it. It could be used as steps, but your ancestors and you are just trading places all the time. How long do you want to do that? When there's this freedom beyond that. And Vivekananda used to say, why give people dirty ditch water to drink when the stream of eternal truth is flowing right next to them? Yeah, there's several themes in there. I see you're good at pulling out lots of little things from what's being said. I can see you've had a lot of... It's tricky because there's usually three or four of them, and, and it's like, which one should we go? And then let's try to get them all. But no, we got off on that track there. <laughs> May not remember the other ones. There's a number of good ones in that. I was in a Vedanta class a couple of weeks ago, and, and the teacher was, I think he was quoting Vivekananda as being fond of the word shanai, 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 which means slowly, slowly. And he didn't mean take all the time in the world, you know, about your spiritual development. He meant don't bust a gut trying to storm the gates overnight. There's going to be a, a maturation process, and uh, it's not going to happen overnight. You have to dedicate yourself, like it says in the Yoga Sutras, to long practice in order to really get what you're after. At another time, he would say, if you follow this tradition with the teacher and exert yourself, you can become a yogi in six months. He's also speaking to people who are more qualified. So it's really important, I think, you know, if a person is totally unqualified and they say, well, I'm already enlightened, you just have to smile and, and say, well, let's agree to disagree. But if you're talking to a qualified person, then they are storming the gates. Yeah. You can show them that stream of truth flowing next to them. The reason I laughed when you said that is that I once went on a, a six-month course with Marjimash Yogi. We're in the French Alps, and at the very beginning of the course, he said, we have six months, I want to try to make yogis out of you. I don't know how successful it was. <laughs> but then there's the whole thing in Patanjali of mild, medium, intense, vehemently intense yogis in terms of their sadhana and correspondingly how quickly they realize. Yeah, the study of the Yoga Sutras, I've studied so many systems and quite deeply I don't think there's a more complicated system than yoga. Tantra, for sure, but that was never systematized. 
that's just too old and too wide. And there's been no tantric single person that's ever systematized that, like potentially attempted to do with the eight-limb yoga about 140 years after Jesus. So that yoga is very complex and deserves a good long study with a yogi or yogini to understand it. When you say complicated, you you mean like sophisticated, like really nuanced and detailed? Yeah, I don't mean complicated in the negative sense necessarily, although some people might think so. But uh, by sutra, you go through it, and it just offers up so much all the time. I want to get back to that classroom in Wyoming. So you said, what are you doing here? (laughs) You've already learned all this. But let's say they're studying astrophysics or something like that. Well, they haven't necessarily learned all that. And if there's a value in learning that, then there's a good reason for them being in school. Well, I would say that any system of study is easily understandable and worthy of attempt. If you have that qualification, say non-duality first, if you put the one before the zeros, Sri Ramakrishna said, then the zeros add up to a lot. But most people are going about secular studies as if it's new, but there's nothing new under the sun. Even Christianity will tell us that. So there's some altercations that need to be made to the modern mind in order for secular studies to produce something worthwhile, rather than just money, objects, pleasure, degrees, and fame, debate, and so forth. If you really want to get to the point of true understanding, or what you mentioned earlier about intelligence with a capital I, well, that's the first compound of consciousness you're talking about. Intelligence is the first thing out the gate from the word. And uh, if you have that, if you can keep it, as you take on a physical body, then, of course, all those things are known to you. Any kind of physics is already known to you. That is, the essence of physics is known to you. Maybe not the little details that you're trying to dig into to get the grade, but the essence of how the physical universe works is known to you. That's my answer. Yeah, so you could call pure consciousness or something, you could call it the home of all knowledge, perhaps. If you can get established there, then... It's like there's an old analogy of capturing the fort. Let's say there's this territory, and there's different interesting things in the territory. There's a diamond mine here and a gold mine there and and so on. You can go chasing after and trying to explore those mines, but it's not your territory. You don't own it. It would be better to capture the fort first that commands the whole territory than having done that. Then you can explore at your leisure. So relating that to gaining knowledge in various relative fields if you could sort exactly. of make self-realization exactly. your yeah. first priority, then it gives you a center from which to explore in a wholly different way. And it, it integrates and unites all those disparate fields of knowledge. Right. And you're talking about Patanjali's yoga, the first yamas and niyamas. He talks about aparigraha and so forth, which is the, the gathering of things to yourself, the making of money. Buddha talked about that too, 700 years prior to him, in terms of the Eightfold Path how to do right livelihood and all that. When it comes around to Patanjali's time of talking about Aparigraha, he says that the effects of that, or let's put it this way, the effects of not mastering Aparigraha is that you're routed toward money the minute you're born. Your parents will route you toward making a living, towards getting a degree, towards getting secular education, and nothing about philosophy, dharma, or anything to prepare you for the risks of getting attached to the world of name and form and time and space, getting attached to Maya without even knowing Maya even exists. Vivekananda said those people are like fish 
who, after the fisherman throws his net, are at the bottom, sunk in the mud, thinking they're fray, but they've got the net in their mouth. So Aparigraha, I'm just saying, this, you know, Ahimsa, I'm getting a seminar on nonviolence next weekend. Aparigraha is another great study about uh, money-making and what it does to people and how it's okay, it's fine to do it and necessary in this world to do it if you put in front of it first knowledge of the self, just knowing who you are. It's really quite simple teaching, but it's over. So it would be nice if society were structured such that the educational system provided a means for self-realization as it trained the kids in all the various other things that they might learn. Then, then it would be a really balanced development. Swami Vivekananda has some writings on education, some small books that were put out, where he says that he would like to see the grade system abolished and get people out of the classroom because then the younger people would learn with the older people, and the older people, older kids would know how to guide them, and the younger people would have ideals to look up to amongst their own school. So there are some major changes to our educational system that he wanted to see, and getting people outside the classroom into nature, like the old rishis. They learned a lot of things out sitting near the stream under a tree, interspersed with periods of quiet meditation, then you learn something. Then you meditate on it. Then you learn something. That's a way that learning can proceed in a much deeper way. I would suggest that all the problems we see in the world, environmental degradation and economic inequities and crime and yeah, political mess, all this stuff is... Political, yeah, wars, military. It's all just kind of symptomatic of what we're talking about here, which is that Self-realization is, its very existence isn't even known by most educators, and it's just not part of the curriculum any place. And if it were universally throughout the world, I think that most of these problems would just collapse, or we'd find solutions, even if it meant like building better solar panels or whatever. We'd have the creativity to do it, and we would have the political will to implement it without all sorts of ulterior financial motives and some oil company bribing us not to vote for it, and you know, all that kind of stuff. It would all just sort itself out. Yes, and the eternal money-making wouldn't be at the foundation of it all. Knowledge of the self would be, because uh, attachment to matter has always been one of the evolutes of Maya, as you heard in that CD you listened to. Again, back to the classroom in Wyoming, don't you think that there's a kind of a evolutionary journey that we're on and that, you know, we go from lifetime to lifetime, not arbitrarily, but in order to gain certain knowledge or experiences that we need to have for our, our soul to kind of ascend the evolutionary ladder. Well, I think if you truly ascend the evolutionary ladder, you have what's called involution, and that's missing in the West, missing pretty much in the world right now. To go within, Jesus said, the kingdoms of heaven are within. So really, the kingdoms of heaven are your dreams. Because what's in you is just some fleshy organs and some blood and various things flowing through veins and muscles and stuff. So what's within is, uh, what is that, the atomic particles or something? Well, they're not leading us anywhere. So true within, then, would be your mind. And kings of heaven are where you're dreaming in your mind. And so you go to them every night. So with this kind of this philosophical basis of things, then you would have to say that, that people are just conducting themselves about their minds all the time, and they're not getting beyond that. 
their thoughts lead them, their limited wills lead them, and they don't have any higher guide or any stronger realization than what's just inside the dual mind, manas it's called, the dual mind. It's named that way on purpose because uh, you're going to have to try and make it non-dual if you want to understand truth or reality. And that's that's a quite a, a large step, really. If we consider the five koshas model, don't you think that Jesus was not referring just to the mind when he said the kingdom of heaven was within, but the various levels which are more fundamental than mind and ultimately to the Atman? Yes, mind, but also include Vigana Maya Kosha and Nanda Maya Kosha. To understand that, you'd probably want to look more at the uh, three bodies and the three worlds. The five sheath system is pretty much just a, here's how you silkwormed yourself, you know, in this lifetime covered yourself with five levels, like a coconut with five layers, but the kernel is inside, rattling around in there free. So five koshas is, is a system that, that's good for teaching that, how false superimposition, how you took on these coverings when you were born. But if you wanted to know more the answers to the question we were just talking about, then you'd probably want to go to the gross, subtle, and causal levels of your being, which are waking, dreaming, and deep sleep correlatives which means A-U-M, which spells Om. You're going to have to go to the word for all those beautiful transcendent triputis, they're called in Sanskrit, triple teachings. There's that Gita verse, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. So infinite joy sounds a lot like the kingdom of heaven. If Brahman is, at least initially, contacted by withdrawing the senses from their objects, as it says in the Gita, kind of like the tortoise withdrawing its legs into its shell, then to me, kingdom of heaven within is this sort of 180-degree turn in which one sort of gets down to one's essential nature and finds it to be quite heavenly. Yes, it depends on what you mean when you say kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus was talking to a fallen Judaism, talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was there in the midst of the Romans. His students were tax collectors and fishermen. When you have that kind of situation around you, then you're going to have to specify a little deeper what kingdom of heaven really means. I think if he's talking about Almighty Father, which doesn't get the attention that Brahman gets in Hinduism, but if you talk about the Almighty Father, then you're talking about something beyond heaven, beyond lands, beyond realms. That's non-duality. But if you're talking about the kingdoms of heaven that uh, mean that you come back with your ancestors, that's a lower heaven. That should probably be defined for people outside of Christianity, maybe even inside of Christianity, because that's not a goal. It says right in the Upanishads, we gave up the heaven-seeking senses. That's a direct quote. And we realized that all the gods were in us. We didn't have to bow to them. They're inside of us. So the Upanishads are really express about that kind of direct teaching and uh, the levels of mind and how to live beyond them and still utilize them. I guess the gods would have to be part of us. Aham Brahmasmi, if I am that, and <laughs> that alone is, then if there are gods, they've got to be within me. Yes, when you realize Brahman, you'll realize that that very auspicious day, he says, the singer, then you'll realize that all the gods and goddesses exist within you. That's even in their songs. So this has been in the minds of the Rishis and the Indian race for millennia. And it'll come back in cycles, too. When cycles come back, that knowledge will come back. 
That's called Sanatana Dharma, eternal Dharma. It's not something that's going to pass out of existence. Actually, nothing's going to pass out of existence. It's just going to appear and disappear inside of seeds. Time is a seed. Space is a seed. Karma is a seed. The human body is, comes from a seed. Everything is seeds. So the teaching of external nature, prakriti, we don't have internal nature in the West. We just have external nature. So we don't know how to trace air, earth, fire, water, and ether to air, earth, fire, water, and ether in our mind, where they came from. Prakriti can't operate by itself. It has to have a source to come from. And these are those 24 cosmic principles I mentioned. The name for them in Sanskrit is Adi Daiva Vidya. This is the Adi original Daiva divine Vidya knowledge. This is the original divine knowledge by which the soul involutes back to its source. Patanjali says it in the very last sutra of his Yoga Sutras. She takes the transmigrating soul and returns it to its origin. As she does so, she strips name and form away so that it can realize its formless essence. Last sutra of the Yoga Sutras, if you were to study all the way to the end. So this is a Shakti, back to full circle to where we were coming from. This is her doing. This is what she wants to take the transmigrating soul and return it to its origin again. But she'll have to strip nature away. In order for nature to be stripped away, the soul's going to have to know that it's not just external nature, five elements in the body, but it's internal nature too. That's called unmanifested property. And we don't know anything about that. Vivekananda came here and said, you don't know anything about prana. Then the next thing he says, oh, I see you don't know anything about tanmatras. So he started going through the cosmic principles and saying, this is why your senses are seeking lower heaven with your ancestors, is you don't know that you can get beyond that, that you have come from a much purer and more divine space, if you come at all. He wasn't very kind to coming and going. He says all coming and going is nonsense. You just are that essence. That's it. And that's the Advaita. Of course, you're going to say next, and a lot of people will, says, well, how do we work ourselves up to that through these processes in relativity? But we're saying you cannot get to the infinite through the finite. You're going to have to put the infinite first and then realize that the finite is transitory. Isn't that what they're always saying? From Krishna to Buddha to Ramakrishna, they're all saying that. And I imagine that a lot of these teachers have tried to, I mean, in traditional Hinduism, as I understand it, there's a whole faction of people who who aspire to heaven, the karmakanda, that's what they want to do, perform sacrifices and get to a high heaven and hang out there with the celestial opsaroses or something and enjoy, you know, but that only lasts so long and then they have to come back. And so I, I think what people like Vivekananda were trying to say, I guess, is there's more than that and don't settle for that. I think if people want that, like Holy Mother used to say, if they want money, give it to them. We can't talk them out of it. They come to me and they ask, they know I'm the wife of Sri Ramakrishna, so they ask for things. But no one ever asks for pure devotion or for pure love of God. Where's their devotion go to? They're just asking me for things. You know, and gurus are like that. People will go to gurus, acharyas, gurus, teachers. They will have people come to them uh, for various reasons. The teacher thinks maybe in, in naivety that they're coming there for enlightenment. Most of them aren't. They're coming there to get a wife or a husband. They're coming there to get money. They're coming there to get some 
solution to their misery or suffering? That's really what's happening. You're talking about different levels of consciousness and people who are operating at them. So you have to kind of become a good scrutinizer of where people are coming from. And it doesn't mean you can't give them what they want, but you're always wanting something beyond that for them because they're just coming back again next year and that relationship didn't work, that money went away, and, you know, you see this happening in cycles. Let's just get that all over with and just know yourself, and then everything will come to you. All the gods are in you means that. They're not some deities hanging out in your body somewhere or some, you know, psychic disturbance that's going on or some channeling or something. Your very consciousness is made up of these powers. The gods are just powers, yoga powers. Yeah, I think you could call them, maybe you could call them impulses of intelligence. And really, we are an infinite field of intelligence, which is not just isolated into this body. And that field contains impulses. There's a story in the Bible about a centurion soldier came to Jesus and he he said, my servant or my wife or somebody is having a big problem and, and could you come to my house and and solve it. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come to my house. And the centurion said, no, you don't have to come because I know that you have, he didn't phrase it this way, but you have this all-pervading intelligence. If I, if I want something done, I tell one of my men to go and do it, and I know it gets done. So you can just, without going there, you can make it happen because he's established in that state, which is already there at the house, and, and it can be taken care of from afar. I didn't express that very well. But <laughs> yeah, that's non-duality, really. Being everywhere at once, it's omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, the three ohms, I like to call that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we've touched upon in this conversation, but perhaps not quite so directly, is there's this debate these days between the progressive path and the direct path, and people argue them back and forth. Have you given any thought to that? Do you have any comments on, on that polarity? I'm pretty much, uh, and very contentedly it's ensconced in the non-dual path. So progressive to me sounds like growing, and growing is one of the six transformations. It doesn't happen. You don't grow. You just are. So that's the non-dual path. Then the next thing you said would be the... Progressive or direct or progressive. The other path. Direct path. It sounds a little bit more appealing to me. The quicker we can get out of this maya and do away with our suffering, that is our necessary suffering, because our unnecessary unnecessary suffering, I mean, because necessary suffering will happen to anyone here. That's also one of the six transformations of the Buddha. The quickest way we can return to our true nature, be ourselves in this very lifetime, in Buddhism, you know, it takes three lifetimes usually to do that. One lifetime to recognize your folly, your karma, one lifetime to work on it, and one lifetime to be free. So if you live that one free lifetime, it means you died consciously at the end of your last lifetime, and you're a bodhisattva now, or in our tradition call it jivan mukta now. So that's what people are heading for who are heading for enlightenment, and admittedly, so few are heading for enlightenment. They don't know what it is. They don't know it's possible in this day and age. They don't desire it if they even imagine it to be possible. It's like next week at my nonviolence seminar, I'm just going to have to admit to someone that my subtitle isn't very good. You know, bringing nonviolence into the world is never going to happen. Not this world. That's a pipe dream. But at the same time, suffering's not real. 
So that's a dichotomy that you're going to have to look at deeply. I mean, Sri Ramakrishna had cancer of his throat at the end of his life, for instance. And one person right toward the end said, doesn't that pain you? Only when I talk to you, when I come down and talk to you. When you go away, my mind will go straight to the feet of Kali, and I won't feel this anymore. So he obviously had transcended suffering of all kinds and was living in a state free of suffering. I heard another story about that where he was moaning or something because there was a great deal of pain, and one of his disciples came to him and said, but sir, I, I see that you were in bliss. And he said, ah, the rascal has found me out. <laughs> found out my secret. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful one. You have a little bit of the look of Ramakrishna me? about you, I must say. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> you flatter me. I've heard this story before, and I heard you allude to it in one of your talks, but it says in, in Patanjali someplace that in the vicinity of yoga, there is no violence or something like that. Like a saint in the forest could be sitting there, and maybe the animals don't kill each other within a certain radius, or people don't fight with each other, or something like that. So you just said, well, we're not going to get rid of violence in this world, but what if such people were to become relatively commonplace? What if we had them all over the place? Perhaps the whole world would become more peaceful due to the influence they radiate. Not only true, but very beautiful. But then you're talking probably about yugas. You have to get into the concept of time in Hindu Dharma. The Maha Yuga is a four-yuga thing, Satya. Dwapara, Treta, and Kali, we're supposed to be in the Kali Yuga right now, so we're not seeing a lot of those kinds of souls. But when you read Lord Yoga Vashishta, or when you read any of the ancient seers that taught Sri Ram when that avatar was present, who was before Sri Krishna, in the age before him, you hear them talking a lot about uh, how this Dharma is known by all peoples at that time. These truths are obvious facts to them. They haven't forgotten them. Ignorance only obscures wisdom, Krishna says in the Gita, like smoke covers fire. It doesn't do away with wisdom. So this is the forgetfulness of ignorance, and it increases over the ages. And again, since we don't know manifested property and unmanifested property, we don't know that everything that apparently dies here goes into a seed form in a formless state, which isn't the ultimate formlessness, by the way, Krishna explains in the Gita but it was with the, the realm of prana and so forth. Everything returns to a seed like that, ready to be watered again and come forth in the next cycle. That's actually a, making a long story short, but if you know that kind of cyclic period of time, and you know that it's attended by evolution and involution both, then you become a knower of time, like Shiva. And then all these things make sense to you, like why people are so pig ignorant about the self. In this day and age, they're thick as a <laughs> Yeah, brick. that was a Jethro you Tull album, I, mean. I believe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, there's a couple other possibilities. One is like Yogananda's master, Sri Yukteswar, had a different take on the yugas. He had a different mathematics kind of worked out. And I believe he thought that Kali Yuga wouldn't last 432,000 years, but that we might actually be coming to the end of it pretty soon. And I am not qualified to comment on that one way or the other. But aside from that, some people think that we might be on the verge of a kind of a blip, even if we're going to be into Kali Yuga for a while, that we might be into a blip where there will be a kind of a mini Sat Yuga as there's an epidemic of spiritual awakening that sweeps the world, and who knows how long it would last. So... I'm kind of hoping that'll happen, but 
again, it's just a, a hypothesis. I think you're talking about consciousness there rather than talking about nature and time. I think it's preposterous what that teacher said about changing the Kali Yuga. Sri Yukteswar? Yeah. And I, I know other people have said the same thing who are very philosophically astute. But that aside, the idea of time being, the four yugas being a layer cake rather than something linear is where they teach it in Advaita. So the Satya Yuga is existing at the same time the Kali Yuga is existing. This is what gives you non-dual understanding, is that Sri Ramakrishna can be standing there fully illumined in the Kali Yuga, and a person who came to see him can be living completely in the Kali Yuga, full of ignorance. So you're talking about more levels of consciousness and understanding than you are phases of time. Usually the way the Yugas are interpreted is what everybody is going through. And even in terms of what you just said, I mean, you could say that somebody like Sri Ramakrishna was in Satyuga from his perspective, but people around him were in one or another of the other Yugas. So in other words, knowledge is in the eye of the beholder. The two are going on simultaneously. One's a dream of billions of people who believe in evolution and who believe in growth and believe in transmigration. Maybe they don't even know what transmigration really means because they don't remember their last lifetimes. Okay, give them that. But there are people who are just living in that one presence. and that's The satyam is known 100% there in Satya Yuga by all who are in the body at that time. So it declines as time moves on for those souls who believe in such things as change. This is the one thing that Western philosophers, if we want to single them out like you did earlier, is the one thing they're missing. They don't know about aparinama. They don't know that nothing changes. They are so into change that even their philosophy is based upon change. There is no change. That's maya. And maya doesn't happen. Brahman is aparinama, changeless, and that's the truth, and that's all there is. And that can be put in three words. Tatvamasi, ahamramasmi, can be put in two words. can be put in one word, sarvosmi. Anyway, this is why our Western brethren, God bless them, are missing, again, some of those essential components of experiential philosophy. It's interesting stuff. I mean, there are several different ways I could pick that apart. I mean, you just said that, that <laughs> the yugas could be like like a layer cake instead of linear. I said they are like a layer cake. Or yeah. different dimensions, if yeah. you will. Because you heard Patanjali's teaching about one eternal moment, the six gateways into one eternal moment. That eternal moment is what we're talking about here. Time is an illusion. Yeah, it is. And people buy into it. Yeah, it's a very convincing illusion. And Buddha had said to get out of it and sit on the banks, get out of the river of time, sit on the banks is one of his last teachings. I keep thinking of multidimensionality now as you speak, because I think that one can be out of the river of time, out of the field of activity, clearly dwelling in the sense that I am not the doer and all that stuff, whereas others might see one looking at one's watch because you have to catch a plane or acting and talking and doing things. But, you know, that's just kind of the the crust or the surface of one's life. One's awareness can span the whole spectrum and be primarily established in that which doesn't change, that which is beyond time, and that which doesn't act, and so on, while superficially being engaged in the other stuff. Yeah, that's what Sri Ramakrishna said. To be spiritual is not to be a fool. 
it's not naivete. So you're talking about simultaneously existing things, that spirituality and practicality can exist simultaneously. And when they do, that's when Maya doesn't exist. And when they don't, that's when Maya comes dancing back with its dance of Maya and flummoxes the mind and people forget. So Brahman and Maya, they interchange depending on the intelligence, higher intelligence and consciousness that the person can hold. One will go away when the other's present, and that'll come dancing back when that's present. That's called negligence of Brahman by Shankara in the Vivika Chudamani. So that's very interesting because it's to this one eternal moment thing. If you just learn to live in the one eternal moment, which I saw my teacher in, then that just puts to rest all these doubts and fears that you've been holding about. And all your misunderstandings, Bhranti Darshana, philosophical misunderstandings that Patanjali talks about. So are you saying that if one lives in the one eternal moment like your teacher did, are you saying that one is no longer assaulted by Maya trying to, trying to come in and get you again? Exactly. It's uh, a truth, but it's also true that some of those souls can take on the karma of others. And so it's not like they're going to be dancing, all dancing around in bliss and all happy and saying, ha ha, devil take the hindmost kind of thing. Yeah, they can get throat cancer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so I mean, there's a magazine out there, used to be at least, called What is Enlightenment? Yeah, I wrote once. I said, quit asking the question. It's already been stated in the Hindu scriptures what it is. Vedanta Siddhanta Nirukti Eresha Brahmaiva Jivaham Sakalam Jagad Cha. Time, space, living beings, and the world, all these are Brahman. Living in constant recognition of this fact is what's called enlightenment. So if you fall out of recognition of that fact that all this is a Brahman, the Maya is there. If you remain in it, the Maya isn't. It's that simple. So you have to practice the presence of Brahman, as they say, not neglect it. That's where sadhana comes in, in, this, in the Kali Yuga. Now, would you agree or not that eventually, like taking your teacher as an example, he didn't have to go throughout the day reminding himself that he was Brahman or any such thing. It just became his natural mode of living, his natural state or condition. And that thinking, I am Brahman, is about as effective, really, as thinking about food in terms of having it nourish you. No, it won't. You have to live it experientially. And the thought of food isn't the same as eating it. The thought of Brahman isn't the same as knowing yourself really experientially as that. If the thought gets deeper and more profound, and it's not surface, then of course that changes. Then you reach the first compound of consciousness is called intelligence. That's what Divine Mother is. It's pure intelligence to us. So we tend to hang out with her. She's who we keep on our mind because Brahman sometimes is beyond mind. How can you think about Brahman and do your work at the same time? Brahman will definitely have to go to the background. But some souls have the ability for it to go to the background without forgetting it. Other souls, if it goes, to, if they know it at all, it goes to the background and gets forgotten and doesn't come back. These are some of the dynamics of constant concentration, like we were talking about. If you learn it and keep it, it's like what I was about to say about my seminar coming up. You know, I'm going to have to convince people that ahimsa is an eternal truth, that nothing dies. You can't hurt anything. Read the Gita. Try and understand what Krishna is saying to Arjuna on the battlefield, because then you'll know more about just the moral law of nonviolence or the karmic law of nonviolence, because that's there, and also the philosophical law 
of nonviolence, but you'll know the eternal truth of nonviolence. And then you'll live in it. And you'll be the example here. I mean, Jesus made a beautiful statement about that. He said, I've not come to this world to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And with the sword, I'll separate father from son and mother from daughter. Now, the Christians are so big on family, you know, don't mess with family kind of bumper stickers and stuff. But look what your Savior is telling you. If you're a God lover and your son's not, then you should separate from him. There shouldn't be any sentimentality about this. If you can't bring him to the Lord, let him go his own way. That's called Maya to us. But if we know the path, we have to follow it, and they have to follow us by example. That's what a guru is. It's a good guru. I mean, we can yeah, get we into that one, too, if you yeah. want. Maybe later. Yeah, I'm reminded of an, an old Bengali saying, if, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. I would say in modern terms, that doesn't mean you can't go home and have Thanksgiving dinner with your family or something, or that you have to just renounce your parents and never see them again. But obviously, you know, you have to do your own thing and not, like you were saying earlier, if your parents insist that you want, you, you be a lawyer and you have higher aspirations, then you really have to follow your own calling. You'll be miserable yeah, all your life anyway. I think yeah, if you know these dharmic teachings and you apply them situation to situation, person to person, that's all given. Because when people do hear these ultimate truths, they're going to want to know, how does that work into my life? Or that's not going to work into my life. They might make that presumption. But yeah, you do have to take that highest truth and bring it down. Vivekananda said, without diluting it, very difficult to take the four yogas, for instance, which he calls the new religion of this age, by the way, and bring them down into life without diluting them. Because, you know, people are going to turn uh, Raja Yoga into Hatha. Pretty soon, people are thinking they can get enlightenment from positions or something, or that's all they do. And Shankara says in the Vivekananda, you will never get enlightenment through progeny, through asana, through breathing. Yet some of these might have to be done. You know, it's not like like you're Xing everything out of the equation, but you have to know what really will give you enlightenment or what enlightenment is. The knowledge that all this is Brahman and keeping current with that. If you fall out, it's no one to blame but yourself. There's no God judging you. There's no devil coming after you. It's all your own doing. I have a few questions that have come in that I want to ask, but I want to wrap up another thing we discussed a little earlier. I was asking about direct versus progressive paths, and you said something like you prefer the direct because your orientation is not one of ongoing growth, but more like I am that now growth. or something. Growth. Right? Okay. But if you look back at your relative life over the past decades, don't you feel like there has been all kinds of growth in relative dimensions, such as your knowledge, perhaps your emotions or your heart, and your, your degree of compassion, the clarity of your intellect, you know, all kinds of things perhaps have grown or evolved over these years? Uh, no way. Really? No, it's, it's all been unveiled. And that's different than growth. Just bingo, done. No, no, on growth and uh, stages. It's been revealed. It's revelation. It's what has to happen when you take on a body-mind mechanism because the light doesn't get into flesh yeah. very well, as the seers say. Flesh is, uh, what is that? Oh, What's yeah. willing and something else is weak, you know? The mind is willing and the spirit is spirit willing spirit's the willing. is weak or something. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a fact you have to take into account. But you should never fall into the illusion that you're growing. 
because you are the Atman, and that doesn't But I'm not grow. alluding to the it's Atman. It's never born. I, I'm How talking about Babaji Bob Kindler, who also has a relative personality as well as being the Atman and who speaks and who thinks and who interacts with people. I mean, ha hasn't all of the, the spiritual life you've lived enhanced all those facets of your existence? I don't think any of it would have been possible, or I couldn't have done what I have done if I hadn't have found my teacher in my path and, and realized that I am the Atman. The rest of it would have been a wasted life to me, thoroughly wasted. If you have a child and you put them up against the wall and you measure their growth and you say, oh, you grow, you know, six inches this year, you know, you must stay at the same time. Remember, your Atman never grows. This is how non-dual truth and just gets put aside conveniently. So pretty soon it doesn't exist anymore. It's like the moon changing shapes at night. And people used to believe that there was a demon up there eating it. And that was a half moon. So Rahu, the demon, ate it. I don't know how it got back. Maybe he regurgitated it because it made him sick. That people actually just think of this as, you know, because they thought that that was real. That's how ignorance gets into the mind about being the body-mind mechanism. And senses and objects and pleasures and various things. And they can't be taken at face value. They have to be prefaced. The one has to be before the zeros. That's just a law of thumb, right thinking, philosophy, right orientation, and proper religion, or else it'll become irreligion. You see so much of it. I'm good with all that. I'm just thinking that I could probably f cite examples from Patanjali, and you could cite them better than I could, about stages of growth that the yogi undergoes. You're not a fully blossomed saint on day one or some such thing. And even once the Atman is realized, and I've heard other Vedanta teachers say this, there's still plenty of room for refinement. The refinement is for the mind and intellects, not for the Atman. Good. Well, that, no, I'm clear on that. saying this. I'm clear on that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I hope other people are too, so they won't get argumentative intellect. Remember one of those evolutes of Maya's Tarkika Bodhi, where you argue about everything you hear, but you must know that that person you're talking to about spirituality if he or she is a non-dualist, is coming from that standpoint only as the truth. Everything else has been put second to that. Yeah, I guess the reason I bring this up is that there have been so many examples of teachers who claim to have had some kind of spiritual awakening and to know the self and so on, and then they're found behaving reprehensibly. It creates all kinds of doubt and confusion and harm among their students. I'm kind of big on the notion of ongoing purification and refinement on the foundation of self-realization. Purification of the mind, intellect, senses, body, all of those are, of course, part of sadhana. But if you just have the idea that those are not the self, that's all that Nath is really asking. Nietzsche, Anitsya, Swar, Vastu, Viveka. If you just have that as your first premise and then get into relativity and life and all of that, you have a huge advantage. Sir. Yeah, no, that's good. We're on the same page. Padmasambhava was quoted as saying, uh, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. That's nice, yeah. I'll use that, maybe. <laughs> let, me, let me throw in a few questions here that Thank came you. in. If there's a particular topic that you want to be sure that we cover more than we have, let me know. I mean, don't just wait for me to ask the question. Like, if you want to talk more about the guru-disciple relationship or anything else, yeah, fine. Stretching out has been nice. I could talk about this all day, I, I guarantee you. I wish I could find more souls like who want to.
But uh, that's kind of the point of it. Get them interested in larger amounts. Okay, so here's a few questions. This one is from Emma Sampson, who is in Cornwall, UK. And I think she might be asking this because she might know that you are a musician, among other things. I don't think I mentioned that in the intro. Her question is, do you think music exists outside of our three-dimensional world? I'm kind of reminded of the celestial Gundarvans when she asked that. And if so, do you think that some worldly music could be, from other realms, channeled by human musicians? Well, I was trained classically in both first in Western classical music with a teacher who was a student of Pablo Casals, so I got a really good guru in music in the Western, and then, of course, I branched off into Indian raga and so forth and had a lot of exposure to that. And some of my CDs I put out are based in Indian raga. So I like the traditional. I can say that first. So my answer might come, you know, closed in that. I like the traditional way of approaching music, both East and West, though. And there are differences. So I would say that Western classical music, all of the European composers, for instance, that came throughout the centuries, they just put forth amazing music that I apprenticed and played in sympathies and so forth. And that was divine music to me. The people around me were doing it for a paycheck. When I was in youth symphonies, everyone was idealistic. We all were like, wow, this music is great. But then as soon as I got into professional music and joined a symphony and started getting a salary, that all went away. And I noticed the people around were not acting divine. They were not acting moral, some of them. They were there for ego purposes, and they were there to drink alcohol after concerts, and they were there to party. And I, I don't know, probably people can relate to this. So I stayed with it as far as possible, and I started a recording studio, helped people fashion their musical visions in there, and uh, you know, began to put out music that I had, uh, how do I say? I don't really believe in creation, so I'd have to say it. this music just came to me from meditative moods. That's a kind of channeling that happens to people who don't become desensitized to music as the voice of the goddess. I mean, that's probably the best way I could put it. She's, Saraswati is the goddess of music and wisdom. So when I met people like Ali Akbar Khan and uh, Ravi Shankar, we played with him, and various people in both East and West, a lot of famous artists in the Western categories, they had these ideals of the goddess the goddess of music is who they were playing to. So I think if you become a vehicle of hers, then you just naturally begin to manifest music of that kind. And uh, I don't know the questioner, what she means by the three dimensions or by worldly music. But uh, I've heard worldly music that I'm not at all impressed with. I wish it never had been made. And uh, it's very gross, and the lyrics are bad. The music's not put together well, so I'm a kind of a purist, I admit. It has to have some intelligence behind it, just like the philosophy, to be divine music to me. That's to me. So I don't know if that answers any of that questions, but I think that the three dimensions, if you're talking about in Hindu terms, if you're talking about the outer and the inner and the transcendent, that yes, this music can come from, like you were just mentioning, from the Gandharvas or from the Devas and Devis, who are also adept at divine sound. I think when a great teacher speaks, that's music. And, you know, they used to sing the slokas, by the way. They would chant them. 
just like Gregorian, but Sanskrit, it was the same way. They, they would have two-tone or three-tone kinds of ways of teaching this to their children in a kind of a melodic form. So that's sacred sound to me, and, and it just kind of falls under one banner, but I feel like it has to have some qualification and criterion to make it sacred. Otherwise, I don't feel it in other sounds, other collections of sounds I've heard. What instrument did you play? I was schooled in the cello, and then I branched out, taught myself guitar, and I used the auto harp in place of the harmonium, and I sing bhajans and stotrams in, in Sanskrit. It's pretty good. I heard it on some recordings. The auto harp or whatever sounded nice, too. Just on her point, I've heard that Mozart said that sometimes, that often a symphony would come to him in a flash, like in its entirety, and then he would just have to take hours and hours to write it all down, but the whole thing was just there. And Beethoven was actually, you know, at times quite depressed and suicidal, and he said, but I can't end my life because I feel like I'm sort of an instrument through which this divine music has to come before my life ends. I think all the arts are that way, not just music. The artists that are most tuned in to their craft, they pre-think them, or it comes to them. Sort of like, um, yeah, precognition kind of thing. And then they go and use the uh, elements of nature to put them together. You know, some a box with some cat gut stretched over it with a horse hair with rosin from a tree on it. And you scratch at it and try and make something beautiful. Here's a question from Kieran Perez in San Francisco. You're a lineage holder of both Vedanta and Vajrayana Buddhism. I wonder if you could talk about the historical disagreements when it comes to differences in attainments between the two, also the subtle differences about the ultimate end of contemplative practice. Well, the second half of that question, of course, is easy to talk about. The first part means that I tend to focus on the agreements of the traditions rather than the contentions, because I think there will always be those contentions between thinkers. I mean, I used to be invited to these panels that were popular in the 80s and 90s, where you'd get people from different religions together to try and agree on something. If you put a Roshi and a, and a Tulku and a Swami and a Sheikh and a Christian priest and a Jewish rabbi in the same room, there's no way you're going to get them to agree. Let's face like it. herding cats. Sometimes there can be some good positive things come out of that, and it's, you know, it's a good idea in a sense. But I think each one of them has reached the divine by following their own path, if they have reached the, the goal yet, if they think they have or they know they have. So in that way, then it's very important to find what vibrates best with you as a path. Definitely take a teacher for it. In India, that's just absolute. Vivekananda said you could go from the Himalayas to the Alps, to the Caucasus, to the Sahara Desert, to the Gobi Desert, and to the bottom of the ocean. You'll never get enlightenment until you find a guru. So he was pretty adamant about that. And of course, he had the guru of gurus with Sri Ramakrishna Paramahams. So back more to the point of the question, I, I like the agreements between religions, the correlations. There is overall, and mentioning Swami Vivekananda, his statement saying that Vedanta and Buddhism are just the same. And he doesn't say that lightly about religions. He knows they all have differences and different practices and maybe even slightly different goals in some ways. Heaven for one, total emancipation, formlessness for another. So those are all apparent there. But um, I often say that Lord Buddha was a Hindu man. 
he was born in India. And it's sort of like thinking, oh, well, is Christ blue-eyed and blonde-haired, born, born in Europe or America or something? No, these religions were all from the East, these main religions. And um, so we ought to, to recognize that for one thing, but more along the line of the question than uh, this 37 limbs of enlightenment and uh, all, uh, uh, of Buddhism uh, can be um, compared side by side with the many numbered systems of Vedanta and see that the way that they've grappled with these problems and the way they've developed these beautiful darshanas, as you know, has just been marvelous. And there are more correlations there than there are contentions. I think the contentions come around when people are influenced by debate, argumentation, and superiority of their path. Sri Ramakrishna was not into that. He liked universality, first and foremost. All religions have the same essence in them, but they're not the same. People used to come up to me and say, oh, you're a follower of Ramakrishna. He's the one that said all religions are the same. Please don't say that. He didn't say that at all. He knew they were all different and had different practices to realize the goal. But he did say the essence was the same. And the one reality is the same. Indivisible reality, they call it. It can't be divided into religions. So there's again back to and the didn't advice. Didn't Ramakrishna also actually practice a bunch of different religions? Tell us about that. Briefly, is that when he, he had his Ishtam, his mother Kali, I said, and he adored her and sought her in a very intensive 12 year period of sadhana where she realized her finally. Totapuri came along and then and he studied non duality and got the fruits of that in just a few days. It's amazing what a quick study he was. But he did hold that uh, ideal of practicing different religions. So he had visions of Christ and Muhammad and so forth. The thing was that then people need to probably know about this is that it wasn't just a hodgepodge thrown together in a kind of menu tasting thing we talked about earlier. Basically, it was that when he decided to study the Muslim religion, he ate in the Muslim quarters of the temple, and he put all the pictures of Kali out of his room and focused just on Mohammedanism and realized the goal for that right away so that he could then come back and take up his system again or whatever darshana he was or religion he was particularly interested in and realized them individually from another. So then when he put them together, at the end, they were like facets of a diamond. He used to say, a field doesn't have just one color of flowers. I have gathered many different colored flowers from the field of religion and put them together in one vase, and I've offered them to Mother Kali. So he does have his divine ishtam as Mother Kali. That never changed, divine mother reality. But all the religions he saw were in her. And he would offer them all to her after he finished realizing them. Beautiful and I stuff. don't know, but maybe he did this not only for his own edification, but then having done that, if a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian or somebody came to him, he could really be on their wavelength and teach them more effectively, maybe, because he totally knew their path. Very true. And, and he had had Christians come to him and say, oh, I see, I've been searching for Christ all my life. I just found him looking at that's Sri Ramakrishna. Because, you know, advaitically, they're cut out of the same cloth, these great souls. They may have different times they appear. They might have different features. They may have different colors of skin. But 
if they're advitically realized, which all these souls are, then they're cut out of one claw. So that's the same being you're looking at, but just few outer characteristics have changed. You know, you referred a few minutes ago to these interreligious gatherings where representatives of all the religions get together. I think if you could have a gathering like that, but it wasn't just these modern-day folks, but it was Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad, get them in a room together, I think it would be a different scene. It would sure be interesting, wouldn't it? For you yeah, and I, to be we'd be on the edge of our auditorium or audience or something. Okay, here's the pink elephant question. This is a little goofy sounding, but I think you can make something out of it. This is Mark Allen in Rochester, New York. Sit and breathe. Don't think about pink elephants. If I'm told not to think about pink elephants, all I'm going to do is think about pink elephants. What is watching the pink elephants? What are the pink elephants? Yeah, that's witness consciousness or becoming the observer of phenomena. That's a humorous way of, of expressing it, but I think it comes to the point. There's nothing wrong with that. It reminds me of Om Sat Vidyate Bhavo Nabhavo Vidyate Sataha in the Gita. Krishna says, the unreal never is. The real never ceases to be. The truth about both has been realized by the seers. So when you want to, if you've realized or you think that the Atman's the only reality, then you should probably study the Anatman, like the Buddhists would talk about, so that you, would, you could set them off against one another. You know that the unreal is, never is. It never really exists. It's a manufacture from the real. From the mind of God comes all these worlds. But the mind of God is not Brahman, it's not Atman, that's beyond worlds. So if you know the difference between Sat and Asat, the real and the unreal, then it sounds a bit like knowing the difference between pink elephants and what's beyond them. You should probably study the pink elephant, and if it's a, it's a bubble, pop it to see that it has no substance in it, and then arrive at the real. Good. I heard you make a statement in one of your talks. Dharma is a step beyond morality and ethics, and Atmajnana is a step beyond Dharma. That one kind of jumped out at me. Could you elaborate on that? Well, definitely morality isn't, at least in this day and age, and probably in all the religions, it's really not satisfying us. It's not solving our problems. Anyone who believes that virtue and vice is real uh, does not know the truth. So it's not just that vice is real, virtue also, unreal, virtue also is unreal. And if you think about vice, then you're going to have to think about virtue. And if you think about virtue, you're going to have to think about vice. This is called deluding pairs of opposites that always take the mind in circles, according to Krishna and the Gita. In that way, then, you know, you, you'll rise above these dualities and, and settle in on the non-dual truth, finally, is a short answer. There was another uh, question that Anapurna sent in to me, Anapurna is your student and helper, about the ceaseless debate. Does God exist? She said you would reply from the ancient seers, God is existence. Could we also parse that out a little bit and say that there's kind of a impersonal aspect of God, which might be Brahman or pure existence, and then a, a personal aspect of God, which might be Saguna Brahman, a little bit more manifest or lively aspect of Brahman. Very definitely. That's the advantage of uh, studying the pre-Vedantic period. Vedanta came along, and it's been there all along, but the Vedas were kind of an early period of that. 
Vedas broken into two, basically, and then four sections through time, the Upanishads being the fourth. So in the early times, before the Upanishads were fully evolved as far as uh, into scriptures that were at first not recited, not even written down, finally got written down. So you're talking about the pre-Vedantic period there where people had this um, understanding that Brahman had form and it was beyond form as well. Nirguna means free of attributes, free of gunas, free of qualities, and saguna means it's with them. As time went on, pretty soon this idea of the real and the unreal came along, and the renunciation of the unreal, the monastic side of things, monism and so forth came along. And that was, I think, in correlation with these dimming down of intelligence over yugas. Pretty soon, it wouldn't be enough just to walk away and say, I see Brahmins with form and also without form, and think that you knew that. But because of the increasing darkness of the evolution process into different yugas, the people who were were taking bodies and coming in the wheel of their ancestors and so forth with the animals and the plants and the elementals in between, the three worlds they call that. Because of that, then they started having to come up with these direct paths, the direct path again, right, which would be a sword that you could separate the wheat from the chaff with. That's Vivica in Jesus' mind, is how to separate the wheat from the chaff. In Vedantic terms, later, Veda Vyasa and so forth came out to that, the discrimination between the real and the unreal. And that would clarify people's minds. Patanjali's version of that some 500 years earlier than Veda Vyasa probably was this eight-limbed yoga by which you could transcend the ignorance of the mind. So these are all important steps and ways that we probably should look at as a, as a whole package of Indian Dharma. Uh, and that's where morality leaves off and Dharma begins to attract. We saw this in the 60s and 70s with Tibetan Buddhism. That's why I got attracted to it too. Wow, these are teachings. These are great. This is different than what I heard coming from my culture, from my society, through my teens and into my early 20s. This has some substance to it. I was immediately attracted to it, and so were a lot of my friends, and you could call him my uh, older spiritual guide, you know, Lex Hickson, who is the founder of this SRV foundation, sort of a mentor, spiritually speaking. So when we heard of that, those teachings, that we were on the road of Dharma, when we read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, which is a marvelous book, it's like the Gita of this age, I think, then you find out the difference between Dharma and morality. Because Sri Ramakrishna, the great master, is, is surely showing you the difference between that. People setting their, their feet on the path of divine teachings that can immediately remove the ignorance from the mind so much more effectively than morality or ethics do, if they do at all. So I, I think we talked about purification. You, know, you can purify certain aspects of yourself with morality and ethics, but in India, I found, you know, that you come into your life with those already. You come with them. You don't leave home without them. I used to teach Vedanta in prisons. I never saw a Hindu in prison, you know. But when I did, they were shamed, and their parents wouldn't talk with them anymore. You know, it's like, you don't do this. You don't get caught in immorality. It's just not done. 
It's not in you. You don't arrive here on earth with evil, violence, and those kinds of tendencies. So I, you notice the difference in soul quality that way if you spend enough time amongst them. And I spent time amongst the brahmacharis and the monks, too. And that was even another level. That's where you found out what Atmagyan was so enticing about Atmagyan as compared to Dharma. Because Krishna says in the Gita, right, Dharma left unrealized, knowledge left unrealized can lead to harm. You don't want to leave knowledge unrealized. You want to take it to truth. If knowledge doesn't lead you to truth, then it will fall into negativity. I think that describes Western knowledge right now. Atom bombs, wars, weapons, hurting people. That's not done. It's just not done. It's not acceptable. And of course, there are prisons in India and plenty of people in them. But I think when you speak of, you know, you don't find Hindus in prison, I think maybe you're referring to people who actually really live up to the spirit of Hinduism or what it's supposed to be. Yes, well, you got me there. In the Kali Yuga, a lot of things change. But there are some nice videos about Hindu prisons where the guards and the Hindus are really friendly with each other. You don't find that very much happening in American prisons, I can tell you. I'm trying to think of the name of this documentary about people meditating in an Indian prison. Those two brothers or some put it out, I think. I would put it succinctly to end, end that part of the topic is that to recondition people is the point. If it's a higher leaning, to punish them is the lower meaning. And you guys do some service work in prisons, don't you? Yeah, we did for some couple decades. There's that verse in the Gita, something, even if you're the greatest of all sinners, you would cross over all evil by the raft of knowledge alone. Let's make this our final point, because our time is pretty much up. But I did mean to ask you about what is it about knowledge that is so purifying? There's that verse, knowledge is the greatest purifier. I think we're not just talking about sitting and transcending, but we're also talking about putting your attention on the kind of stuff that you talk about, you know, studying the Upanishads or the Gita or whatever. That has a purifying effect. Why is that? What are the mechanics of that? We can show the Gyanamatra, this particle of wisdom. That it's a beautiful chart that shows what's in, just like there's a lot of things in an atom. Anna Porta could send that to me, and she may have already. I will give it to our video post-production editor, and she can pop it in there right now if you want to describe it a little bit, what the people will be seeing. Yeah, they can make a study of the outer wall of the cell of knowledge, the inner wall, and all the ingredients inside that have such things to do. Of course, the word OM is vibrating at the very center of it. And what OM means, like waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and Turiya, is pervasive there. And uh, things such as resistance to Maya is a part of the cell wall of a particle of intelligence. These are streaming particles of intelligence coming from, you might say, the infinite radiance of Brahman, coming through the Word, and then from the Word to the Trinity, and then from the Trinity down to all the worlds. Jesus said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's three things that you have to look at there. So when the Word, which vibrates itself, by the way, the Tantras say, nobody strikes it, it's an unstruck sound, those vibrations start off, then everything starts to burgeon and effloresce down till the vibrations get weaker and weaker. And here you find yourself on earth with everything in a growth state. If you reverse that process, you'd find out that the objects out there are just your thoughts. 
made concretized, then you can meditate them back into their origins, right? That's involution when you do that. It's evolved now. It was all a matter of my thoughts and my intelligence at different levels of vibration. Now I'm reversing the process inward in meditation. It's called dissolving the mind stream. We have a book on that, too, that explains the process. And, you know, you said shine, shine. There's a beautiful meditation in Buddhism I learned. It's called the shine. It's called the burning pillar. And it does the same thing. It starts with the centers, which we call chakras in Kundalini, and it begins to take the energy up them and destroy all the passions there with the different winds, different, call it different vayus, forms of vayu, to purify the chakras. So there's these systems that are very beautiful like that, and which then will go towards purification of body, senses, and mind. Great. As we've said earlier, we could probably do these every day and not run out of things to talk about. But, you know, an interview like this is, it's a sampling of who you are and what you have to teach. And you, you have students you've been teaching for many years, and you have ongoing courses of various kinds. I think you've got something coming up in a few days you mentioned. I'll just put a link on your page on BatGap to that page where all the courses and things are listed. And so, you know, some people might catch the one that's coming up this weekend. Somebody might be listening to this five years from now. And so they can just follow that link and see what's available. Come take a Vertanta retreat in Hawaii next month, if you like, here in, on the island. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Rick. That's well, you're welcome. Helpful. And thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed this whole week listening to your various talks. And all that stuff is also available, I, I think, on your website and on your YouTube channel. There's all kinds of interesting things to listen to. And I really enjoyed our time together today. Great, Rick. Thank you so much. It's been very beneficial. And I've learned a lot. Oh, really? Lot, <laughs> he so. finally admits it. <laughs> <laughs> In a sense, yeah. In a that sense. aspect of which, which can learn and grow. Yeah. <laughs> it's helped unveil things for me. Okay. So thanks not only to you, but thanks to those who've been listening or watching. This is an ongoing series, as you know. Next week, I'll be speaking with my old friend, Phil Goldberg. We've known each other for 50 years, and he wrote a biography of Yogananda. So we'll be talking about that and whatever other topics come up in the context of that. And um, we have an upcoming interviews page on BatGap, which you can look at to see who's scheduled. And there's a little calendar reminder thing that you can click on on the right-hand side of each one where you can have it pop up a reminder in Gmail or Outlook or whatever you use to be in case you'd like to tune into the live ones. All right. Thanks, Babaji. Thanks. Don't accept any pink elephants. <laughs> and thanks again to Annapurna for all her help. She's a, a great aide. Very definitely. All right. Namaste. Aloha. Namaste.